0: says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel, according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began but has now been revealed by the appearing of our savior jesus christ who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel to which i was appointed a preacher an apostle and a teacher of the gentiles and father we humbly ask that just as we continue now in this time of worship that as we've sang and prayed and done other things, that this would now be an act of worship as well as we submit our hearts and our minds, our soul and spirit to to what you as the living God would want to say to us through your word that you have given to us as a way to speak to us. So we ask now, prepare us each accordingly, Lord, that we would truly have an ear that wants to hear what your spirit is trying to say to us. This morning, as the church. So bless your word, speak to us, we ask, by the Holy Spirit's ministry, and we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. You know, what is truly the biblical, and I emphasize the word biblical gospel? And I say that because we do have in our culture things like what would be referred to as a prosperity gospel. Uh, meaning that the gospel is basically just a means to prosperity, to health, to wealth, and if you embrace Jesus, that it should guarantee absolute health and great amounts of wealth in your life. You know, there's a seeker-sensitive gospel that exists in our culture. But what is truly the biblical gospel? And by that, what I mean is the gospel message that's truly found within the Bible. The biblical presentation of the gospel, the, the true gospel, would be the most honest way to say that. Well, I think this passage certainly gives to us a lot of clarity in regards to that, and we can certainly see that as we go through it together this morning. Remember the backdrop, verse 6 and 7, we just looked at last week. Paul was just reminding Timothy who is a pastor in Ephesus there. He's taken over a church that Paul had planted and is now serving the people there in the midst of very difficult circumstances. It's not easy to be a Christian at this time. And Paul reminded him to stir up the gift of God that was within him, that work of God's spirit, the calling upon his life, the gifting he had from the Lord to to stoke it like a fire, to stir it up afresh. And he said to him, verse seven, for God has not given to us a spirit of fear, of cowardice, of intimidation or passiveness. But he said, God has given to us power and love and a sound mind. Now, Paul going on from that statement then says in verse 8, therefore, in light of that, that is in light of those things, he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. So Paul gives to Timothy now we see another exhortation. And here now he's encouraging him not to let himself or not to allow himself to start to be ashamed of really the message and the ministry of the gospel of Jesus. Again, you can hear Paul's heart here saying, Timothy, a spirit of fear, a spirit of cowardice, a spirit of intimidation is not God's will. So don't draw back. When times get difficult or because things get hard, because they will, he's saying God hasn't supplied you with with this fear and intimidation. He says, God's given you supernatural power. Even in the face of difficulty, God has given you tremendous love, even when it's hard to keep going, to keep persevering and, and to not grow weary or to get ashamed and shrink back. And sometimes, listen, there are going to be certain forms of suffering that are attached to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Believing it, seeking to promote it and to proclaim it and to spread it around this world as we're called to. It may be verbal mockery that we experience. It may be forms of rejection at times from people that we're going to endure. It may be mistreatment or personal loss or even physical suffering. But Paul is telling Timothy and the Spirit of God is telling us there but yet do not be ashamed and the language literally is don't allow yourself to start to become ashamed it doesn't seem he's accusing Timothy of this it seems more that he's trying to give an exhortation and encouragement because he understands the temptation as a man himself with human weaknesses and tendencies and so forth he's saying Timothy don't allow yourself to start to ever become ashamed of the testimony of our Lord and the things of the gospel. Now, the word ashamed simply means to be embarrassed or to be intimidated uh, in your life because you feel inferior or unworthy or disgraced regarding some part of your life. And so Timothy here needed, notice, to guard against the temptation of such feelings of being ashamed or Thoughts in his mind that would make him become ashamed, where he'd actually start to feel a little embarrassed at times or intimidated because of his association with Jesus. And because of his association with Paul the Apostle, and the style of ministry whereby Paul approached the gospel of Christ. So he says there verse eight, do not be ashamed first of all, he says, (coughs) excuse me, in verse eight, don't be ashamed first, he says, of the testimony of our lord. Now what would be the testimony of our lord? Well, that would be the details and the facts when somebody gives testimony, they're giving details and facts. It would be the details and the facts about the experiences of Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection, everything about him. And think about what those details or that testimony really involved. It involved Jesus claiming to be God and claiming that he was sent to this world from heaven by the heavenly father to save humanity from their sin and that though he was the Lord of glory from heaven, that he humbly entered into this world to a poor Jewish family, two young people lived a very humble life of servanthood, was meek. He went about doing good and helping people, and giving out of his life, and teaching God's truth. And then Jesus was arrested. He was badly beaten and tortured, and ultimately was put to death upon a cross, which was the most shameful and disgraceful way that the worst of criminals would be executed. And since then, had been claiming he was back to life, and yet no one really, other than his followers, had said that they had seen him. Now, Think about from the worldly mentality of a person hearing that testimony and from a worldly evaluation of these things that pertain to the Lord. In essence, the leader and founder of this thing called Christianity, Jesus, was a common carpenter who came from not so good of a city called Nazareth. He was someone who lived in a poor Jewish family Without any formal education, without any formal religious training, without any endorsement of an organized religious system backing him, no strategic program, no great list of donors, n- none of these kind of things. Going about humbly the land of Israel, traveling around with a small group of, let's be honest, ragamuffin looking men, the disciples, as his team, going around proclaiming the kingdom of god telling people how to be saved teaching and then ultimately within a matter of three years he's arrested he's beaten and tortured beyond human recognition and publicly executed as a criminal and now people are claiming he's back alive and yet nobody's seeing him with their own eyes and this yet why is why paul says but yet these are the very things that we know displayed his love and made salvation possible. But Timothy, despite how people would view that, don't let yourself be ashamed of that testimony of our Lord because this showed his love. And this is how people have the opportunity, therefore, to be saved. And he says, so don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor, he says, of me, his prisoner. So again, at this point, Paul's currently imprisoned, we've talked about that, for serving the Lord. But notice as well here, Paul viewed himself not as a prisoner of Rome, he calls himself his prisoner, referring to Jesus. In other words, Paul didn't view himself as Rome's prisoner, he viewed himself as being imprisoned by the plan and the purpose of God. But again, think from that logical, worldly observation and mindset of those who would evaluate Paul. Currently, Paul the Apostle, their most prominent worker among christianity those who are christ followers their most prominent worker is sitting in a dungeon like prison on death row he traveled all around every time paul seemed to go into a new community he always caused disruption and an unsettling effect and many a times was then arrested multiple times was thrown into prison and so here is their most prominent worker he's currently in prison on death row so As you think through this from the way that a logical person would think of this, why Paul's saying, don't be ashamed, don't let it out, because people would kind of have the mindset, okay, let let me get this straight here. This is your track record for Christianity. This is the reputation that you're so proud to promote and stand by. Let's see, your founder of the whole thing, your founder of the whole thing, your Lord, he was arrested, beaten, and publicly executed as a horrible criminal. And uh, let's see, your top church leader, he has a record of multiple arrests and imprisonments, and he's currently on death row. This is what you're proclaiming to us and proclaiming. So, again, you can see how the rational mind without faith or the ability to see beyond logic alone would mock and despise that. would see that as foolishness would see that in many ways as something that was very unpresentable and how even people would then be intimidated or disinterested from even wanting to become maybe a follower of Jesus, understanding these things, because people in that day understood very clearly, maybe in some ways we don't today, if we follow this Jesus, your Lord, uh, we might end up experiencing the same thing that he did or that Paul the Apostle, your most prominent worker in the church, did. So please take notice, in that day, there was no question, the gospel message in Christianity being promoted was not a pathway to an easier life. It wasn't, it'll give you a better day and make your world wonderful. This isn't what the gospel was. It wasn't, if you embrace the gospel, you should expect prosperity and advancement and favor and a better life here in this world. That was not what the gospel was promising to people. And so here, Paul says, yet Timothy, be encouraged Don't allow yourself to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of the fact that right now I'm his prisoner. But he's saying, Timothy, remain faithful. Serve Jesus. Don't let yourself become ashamed of these very things. He invites him, verse 8, he says, but instead, look as he goes on, he says, share with me in the sufferings for the gospel. The gospel, again, that word gospel just means good news. So the word gospel simply biblically means the good news about Jesus Christ and what Jesus did for us. Yet in a world that loves sin and is under the powerful sway of Satan and that has a very anti-Christian spirit within it, believing the gospel and serving the cause of the gospel to preach it or to represent it, there is going to be certain forms of suffering that are directly attached to that, therefore. And and Paul's inviting Timothy to embrace that. He's saying, listen, as the result of your association with Jesus and the gospel of Christ and the work of the gospel of Christ, there is going to be suffering attached to that. Remember, Jesus himself said in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you also. Jesus said that to his followers. When we read the book of Acts in the early church, we see this happening continuously. In Acts 4, we read, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees, take notice, those are the religious people, the organized religious structure with all the good reputation of hey, these are the top notch religious people. The religious people in that day, it says, were greatly disturbed that they taught the people not their religious system, but they preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They wanted their system preached. Well, you can't preach Jesus. We gotta preach our system. That they were disturbed. It says so that it further spreads no more, let us severely threaten them, they said, so that from now on they speak no more in this man's name. Then you go into Acts chapter 5, the next chapter, again, they're sharing the gospel. Then it says they laid hands on them, put them in prison, and when they called for them and had beaten the apostles, then they commanded that they should not speak any more in the name of Jesus and let him go, so they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing listen rejoicing they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name and daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching jesus as the christ and as you travel through the book of acts later then paul and his companions just like peter and james in the first individuals in acts 4 and 5 same thing mistreated, mocked, arrested, beaten, abused, thrown in prison, suffering for the gospel. So Paul here in verse eight is inviting Timothy to willingly join him to participate in the sufferings that are attached to association with Jesus and the gospel of Christ. He says, Timothy, partake with me, participate, the idea is share with me, join in. He says, be willing to experience this suffering, and the reason is because it's something worth suffering for. People suffer for a lot of stuff in this world, and people lay their lives out, man. They sacrifice, pour out their lives, kill themselves in this world, and are willing to suffer, human determination will, for a lot of wonderful things. But listen, if people are willing to do that in our American culture and all over our world for for good things, quality things, certainly we have something worth suffering for to some degree personally for the gospel. Whatever those sufferings may look like in our life to be faithful to Jesus and the gospel. And the reality is we must truly accept for ourselves that living for Jesus and serving him in his work and his ministry will bring upon us forms to some degree of personal suffering. And again, that can come, as I said, in many ways. It may involve being misunderstood simply because you stand for the gospel simply because you stand for jesus and you want it to be about and, and you may be mistreated or misunderstood or falsely accused at times from a friend or an associate or a fellow student or or a family member even you know you may be mocked or persecuted and, and then maybe even unfairly treated because of your stand for jesus you may even suffer some form of personal loss or or punishment and you could even be physically harmed but yet the bible tells us in philippians 1 for to you it's been granted on behalf of christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake that is not one of my top bible promises i'll tell you that it's a bible promise but i don't have that one highlighted in my bible i'll be honest for he says it's been granted it's almost like it's a privilege it's been granted to you To not only get to believe on him, but also it's been granted as the consolation prize to also suffer for his sake. But that's attached to the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. But we can all fall prey to temptation, like Timothy, to be ashamed, to shrink back, to retreat. And so we have to guard ourselves against those pressures and fears that would make us fall prey to that. The Bible says we must... Be careful not to let that paralyze us in our thoughts or feelings. By faith, we really need to hear Paul's confident charge from Romans 1, 16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So notice, as he encourages Timothy to share with him participating in the sufferings of the gospel, he also, at the end of verse 8 there, doesn't say, Timothy, just grit your teeth and do it. Timothy, just find the inner strength not to be intimidated. He says, Timothy, listen, God wants you to do this, but he'll give you the power and the strength to do this. Because you see what he says at the end of verse 8 there? He says, share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God. In other words, he's assuring Timothy, listen, if you do what's right, God will give you the power to carry it out. If that even means suffering to some degree, God supplies the power to enable the Christian to endure the suffering, to remain faithful in the midst of suffering or hardship, to continue to honor Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4 says the power is of God and not of us. I'm so glad for that. God supplies His power when we seek to be courageous and obey the Lord. He gives us His power to endure suffering, to remain faithful and overcome whatever it may be to be faithful to our calling in the Lord. Well, Paul then going on here now in verse 9 and 10 is gonna describe more aspects of the gospel, this gospel that's worthy to suffer of, that we shouldn't be ashamed of. And he's gonna talk about why it is something worthy to suffer of, to prove that. He goes on to speak about the gospel there. Regarding it, he says that it is God, verse nine notice, who saved us And called us with a holy calling, not according to our own works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who's abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, that's a mouthful there. But in that, we find some really wonderful components of the gospel, the good news about Jesus' salvation and what he's done for us. The first thing that we take note of in verse 9 there is that God sent Jesus into this world from heaven to be the means and avenue, look in verse 9 there, first of all, whereby God saves us and calls us to himself. This is the means, the gospel, whereby God saves us and calls us to himself. The reason the gospel message is good news is it announces to us the good news that God made a way to save us. Now, that being said, save from what? Why do you need to be saved? God wouldn't send Jesus to save us. If we didn't need to be saved from something that indicates that we all need to be rescued, to be delivered, to be saved. All we, like sheep, the Bible says, have gone astray. Everyone's turned to his own way. The Bible teaches that we all sin, that we fail, that we miss the mark of perfection that's required to enter into God's holy presence in heaven we all make mistakes whether it's things that we have thought wrong in our mind that nobody ever heard us say or nobody saw us think god saw it whether it's something that we said at one point in our life or a hundred we've all said wrong things we've all done wrong things and and the fact of that the bible says there's no difference we all sin and do things wrong we miss the standard of holy perfection to get into heaven and our sin against god who is holy makes all the world the bible says guilty before god that we all each one of us deserve truly the wrath of god and punishment for our sin against god as an individual that we truly deserve when we die to be cast into hell to suffer torment forever and ever in the lake of fire eternally, continuously. But yet the Bible tells us that Jesus himself announced in John chapter 3 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever would believe upon him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. He then went on to say, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. To be delivered from this that we deserve, that Jesus was sent to save us from the penalty and the punishment we all deserve for our sins and that we need to be saved from. And that Jesus was sent to give us a right standing and make us acceptable to God so we could have heaven instead. And Jesus was sent to save us from the power of sin. And notice verse 9 there, he says, this spiritual calling to enter into relationship with God and fellowship with God. And this calling of God to enter into heaven after we would die, he says in verse 9 there that this is a holy calling. He's called us with a holy calling, indicating, first of all, that the origin of that calling is from God. God initiated it. It wasn't us trying to work back to God and get right with him. It was God who is holy, who dwells in holiness, yet through love simultaneously through the work of Jesus made a way whereby, listen, sinful, guilty, defiled people because of their sin against a holy God could actually be forgiven, cleansed and made holy and acceptable so that we could have access into heaven. That it was God in his holiness, but yet in his love, through Jesus, made a way for us to enter into heaven's holy existence, to cleanse us from our sin, to make us righteous by what Jesus did for us, to, to give us that standing, and then also gives to us, when we do embrace Jesus and his salvation, he gives to us the power of his Holy Spirit to live within us so that we can then live a holy life rather than living a sinful life. And God has offered this to us. Now, that doesn't mean by that sense that we will ever have perfection in our performance, but it indicates that we've received the power of the Holy Spirit to pursue that which is holy and what is God's will instead. The very word holy simply means to be set apart for special use or purpose. So this holy calling for the Christian is not only a calling to have holiness and righteousness in our standing before God so that we can be accepted in heaven, but it's also a calling to be able to then pursue a life of holiness in God's will to live set apart for God now rather than living for sin instead fulfilling God's purposes because we've been set apart for that. And notice the calling unto salvation going on in verse 9 there, this experience of being saved. Look what he says, verse 9. He says, it's not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus before time began. Notice, salvation, the Bible, God is being very clear. God says, it is not according to works, to human efforts. It's not based upon religious activity, religious commitment, religious observances church attendance saying certain prayers giving a certain amount of money going through routines and rituals of a religious system of any former type god says it's not according to any good deed that it could be achieved it's not something that's based upon or earned by doing good things or not doing bad things and trying to keep some checklist that's not something we work for in order to obtain the bible says god's salvation which we all need is not according to works paul said writing to the ephesians in verse uh, 8 9 of chapter 2 ephesians 2 8 9 he says for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of god not of works lest anyone should boast aren't you glad he adds that lest anyone should boast it's not of works lest anyone should boast it's almost like God knows that if somehow it could be anything to do with what I did that somehow got me into heaven I would mess up heaven because i get there and I'd say well let me tell you what I did to get in here and God says no there'll be no boasting in heaven everyone will say let me tell you what I got to do here what, what I did I was a failure I messed up in life but God was merciful to me. And he showed me that I needed to be forgiven like every other human being that I was no different. And, and though I might have looked at others and said, oh, that person's horrible, that God ultimately showed me, you're horrible too. And I finally realized it. And I asked Jesus to forgive me of, of my sin. It doesn't matter. What, and, and I realized it. And, and, and God's mercy, not my works in any way. Titus 3 says... For we ourselves were all also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Just in case you needed a long enough list. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, listen, not according to works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. This is hard because in this world, right, we work for everything else in life. We work to get people's approval of us. We work, and then we get our paycheck and compensation. But to become right with God, to experience forgiveness of sin, to have access into heaven after you die is something that cannot be worked for. It can't be obtained. It can't be achieved. Nothing we could do would ever be good enough to qualify. And let's be very frank, that takes humility to believe that about yourself it truly takes a, a humility to accept and believe I'm not good enough I can't work for it there's nothing I can do to deserve it but that Jesus needed to provide what I needed and he did the work and that's the only work that's sufficient and so I need what he did not what I'm able to do and to know that I must receive that and I'll tell you Thank goodness that this is true, that it's a holy calling, but not according to works. Because if it was according to works, I would have lost it about six minutes after I got saved. Uh, maybe not even six minutes. I would have made it maybe 60 seconds and I would have just lost it again. But it's not according to works. So it's not according to our works. or deserving it. But he says, verse nine, what it is according to notice is God's own purpose and grace given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Notice salvation was and salvation always will be according to God's own purpose and his glorious grace that comes to us through Christ before time ever even began, the Bible says here. Now, this is beautiful what it's saying. God foreseeing our spiritual need because of our sin, having such great love for us, again, took the initiative And he purposed a way before time began to make a way for us to be saved. He created a plan and he purposed a way for us to be restored as a sinful person into right fellowship with him as a holy God. And this was on his mind and on his heart, knowing all things. He determined a plan to provide a way for you to get to heaven for us to be saved through Jesus and to set in place this plan. It says even before time began. God was already making a way. You want to talk about the amazing wisdom of God? The amazing love of God? That he purposed that and planned that showing that he would do as God keep in mind the one who sinned against we raise our fist as God the one who he so loved humanity made every effort possible to provide a way for us to be forgiven To have a relationship with him to have access into heaven to give us a chance to experience that revelation 13 says jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world that in god's mind the whole thing before the world was even framed god knew what would be necessary because humanity would turn against him and he actively in wisdom and love before you and I as individuals, listen, before we even actively began sinning against God, before you were born and got to start doing bad things, God already in advance had purposed to make a way to forgive you for everything he knew you would do and for everything he knows that we'll still do because we're going to mess up tomorrow and next week and next month too. And God taking all that into consideration, God's plan happened way before you and I were ever born and started proving that we needed to be saved. So in a sense, as I've said many times before, when we fail and when we sin and we're, oh, I can't believe I did that. God's going, I can. Because when I was punishing Jesus and watching him bleed out his life and watching him be beaten and tortured and his beard ripped out of his face, I knew that part of the reason for that was because you were going to act the way that you did. Or you were going to say what you did. Or you were going to disobey. And and, and God's more familiar with our sin than we are. And he put all of that upon Jesus. That should assure us how much God desires and wants to save us. And and really how committed God is to the process. And reveals as well. Truly it reveals also how sad it is when people then reject God's salvation. Because they are rejecting something. That before time ever began, God had lovingly, wisely provided for them. They're rejecting something that God has created and supplied that was purposed and just totally setting it aside as if it's unessential. They don't need it. They're going to make their own way. And it's tragic to think about. God's purpose in saving us, notice, was based upon his desire, it says there, verse 9, to give us grace. And notice that grace comes how? It's given to us through Jesus. Can't be worked for. We don't work for it. It's something given to us as a gift. Again, grace is the unearned or undeserved kindness and help and favor of God that is distributed as a free gift that it's offered in love. Grace is something that's extended as a loving, kind gesture of the giver alone. It has nothing to do with the recipient. It's offered to someone, in fact, who does not deserve it. That's why it's called grace. And here the Bible's telling us it must be received, therefore, as something given with a humble, thankful faith saying, okay, it's a gift. I I, I receive it. It's a gift. And again, the Bible tells us, Ephesians 2, that we are saved, I read it earlier, by grace, through faith, it's a gift of God. It's by grace, undeserved, God's kindness offered in a gift, but it's through faith. Us believing, I can't work for it, but God is supplying it as a gift and I have to receive it. We have to believe that and then believing that, act upon that to receive and ask God for what he wants to give to us and take it for ourselves as a free gift romans 6 says the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life through christ jesus our lord again god wants to be gracious to us in our sinfulness in our sinfulness god wants to offer us grace in christ and because of what jesus accomplished Listen to what Wiest, one of the commentators I I read, said in regard to this passage. I thought it was very fitting. He said this. He said, salvation, therefore, can never be earned. If it could, the sinner would be glorified. Salvation must be a free gift with no strings tied to it. And that is grace. The act of God giving salvation as a free gift to the one who does not only deserve it, but who deserves punishment for his sins. This grace is given to us in Christ Jesus in the sense that he made the gift of salvation possible through the death of his son on the cross, by which he satisfied the just requirements of the law, which sinners have broke, thus making it possible for a righteous God to show mercy to a hell deserving sinner on the basis of justice satisfied not of works all by his grace kindly given to an undeserving recipient but God has purposed listen from before you were born to give grace to you No matter what you think of yourself, what you have done, whatever others think about you, God, from the moment you were born prior to that, was waiting for you to be born to the day you would recognize, like we all must recognize at some point by the grace of God, that we're undeserving and that we need his grace. He was waiting to be kind to you and give you his gift of grace, waiting for you to receive it. The question simply becomes this, have you received it? have you received that gift because i can provide a gift for somebody at christmas and i pay for it and maybe they were a jerk all year long i want to be nice to them so i spend six dollars still a gift right but so i pay for their gift i take the initiative i put their name on it i wrap it up and i say here i i want to give a gift to you what i need to do nothing it's a gift you don't have to worry. I paid for it. It's because I love you and I want to give it to you. They could say, I understand what you're offering me, but I don't want it. I don't need it. That's a choice. God's salvation is a gift. We have Either we refuse the gift or we receive it. And it's not until we receive it that it genuinely becomes ours and we experience it. You have to make that Decision. The question is, can you humble yourself enough to admit that you need it and you don't deserve it? And that's something that requires a choice, that you need to realize that and say, I do need it, I don't deserve it, but I'm choosing to receive it for myself. We all must come to that place. Well, look how obvious God sought to make it. Verse 10, he goes on to say, this was all done before time began, but has been now revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So the plan was purposed before time, but then at a set time in history, God revealed it, it says, by sending his son Jesus to physically appear on this earth as the Savior. And again, what is a Savior? We talked about what is being saved. Well, a Savior, by definition, is a person who rescues, spares, delivers from danger or destruction. That's what Jesus is. He's a savior that comes to spare and rescue us. In Jesus, God took upon himself human flesh, came into this world being fully God and fully man to build the perfect bridge between divinity and humanity to create a way for us to be spared from our sin, delivered from our condition. God became the savior that we needed and he did that in the person of his son, Jesus. In Jesus coming and accomplishing what He did for us, He carried this out, and all Jesus did, His sinless life, and then His substitutionary death in our place, taking our punishment, and then His resurrection from the dead, and His ascension back into heaven from whence He first came to the Father's right hand. All that Jesus did coming and appearing on this earth at a set time was to reveal, verse 10 says, that He was the Savior. That the Savior was Jesus Christ who came to seek and save the lost. And look what he accomplished, the end of verse 10 tells us, by his first appearing. He came and abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So again, through Jesus' life, substitutionary death, rising from the dead, ascending back into heaven to sit at the throne of God, Jesus, it says there in verse 10, defeated the power of death. It says he abolished death. The word abolish means to make of no effect, to render inoperative, or to put an end to something's force. What the Bible's telling us here is that what Jesus did, honestly, in conquering death and sin, took away, listen, it took away the negative, harmful effects of the death process upon humanity. Yes, we all die. But if you would, it's like a snake with no fangs or poison in it anymore. Death has been defanged. Its sting is now gone. And and the effect of death, the negative harmful effect of death has been rendered inoperative. Now death doesn't have to be a dreaded enemy that we fear. Death actually, listen, for the child of God, the person who's saved and knows Jesus, Death doesn't have to be a dreaded enemy that ruins or destroys. Instead, death becomes, for the child of God, a servant to help transition us from this life to our ultimate destiny to be in the presence of God, which is where we want to be. It just becomes the servant and the doorway to now assist us, death does. And he says Jesus abolished death and he brought life and immortality to light through this message of the gospel. So his completed work now produces as well eternal life the quality of everlasting life which is the quality of life that's experienced in the heavenly dimension and that's freely available for those who embrace Jesus why? because Jesus is the eternal son of God who came from eternity into this world and is now back in eternity as a risen victorious king so Jesus can give the gift of eternal life and the way he gives that is by giving us himself It says Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. If anyone hears his voice, opens the door that he comes in. The Bible says Christ in us. When we receive Jesus, when we invite Jesus into our life to save us from our sin and ask him to take over and be the Lord of our life, he truly, by his presence, enters into our life. And as the presence of the person of Jesus becomes a part of our life, Jesus brings eternal life because he has eternal life. And so to have Jesus is to have this eternal quality of life. To not have it would be to not have it. That's why Jesus said in John 10, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That is, we die, but we don't truly die ultimately. We just continue living. We die physically, but we continue living eternally because we possess the eternal quality of life. And Paul here says... This appearing of Jesus the first time brought these things to light. The idea is that we might see it clearly. Again, indicating that God wanted all this to be so evident. He wanted the gospel to be so clear, so blatantly obvious that we would be enlightened of what the gospel is and why we need Jesus. So humanity has no excuse of understanding what God says of us is true what is real about our life, but what God has supplied and offered to us in Jesus, and that we need to choose what we're going to do about it. And he says he brought this to light to make it unmistakably clear, but the question is, it's unmistakably clear, but what are we going to do about it? Because God also in that proves to us we have a choice and a decision to make. Verse 11, Paul then adds on to this, to which I, these things, was appointed a preacher an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Again, God wanted this to be communicated to humanity. So interesting, he uses saved people who've already been saved to present that to humanity. Paul says, for this reason, this gospel, I was appointed by God, a preacher, one who proclaims the truth, an apostle, one who's sent out with divine authority, and a teacher, one who explains truths to help people grab hold and understand them clearly paul says this is why i was appointed to this and granted those are things listen that paul was appointed to he had a a calling a spiritual you know assignment a role to be a preacher an apostle and a teacher but in one sense god has appointed us all to new testament ministry the bible says And God has appointed us all to proclaim the gospel with divine authority and to explain those truths to people. Jesus said in Mark 16, to all Christians, go into all the world and preach, proclaim the gospel message. That if you are saved, you know this message. You have to know it. or How could you be saved? I can't share the gospel. I don't know how to share the gospel. I hear people say that. Then are you really saved? The gospel, how did you get saved? You had to know the gospel to get saved. You do know the gospel. Don't listen to the devil telling you don't know the gospel. You know the gospel. It's simplistic. You don't need a five-point track perfectly eloquently laid out. You just tell people, yes, I was a scumbag. Jesus died for me. You just lay it out and share your testimony with people. Jesus said in Matthew 28, that great commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded to you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus says, look, you go and my authority will be with you. And I will be with you in doing that. He promises us to do that. Is it intimidating? Yeah, I'm a coward sometimes. But it's something that we're called to do because this gospel message, this biblical gospel message is the difference between heaven and hell. Forgiveness of sins or eternal punishment for sins. And it's the opportunity to explain to people God's love for them and what he really intends for their lives. Let's stand together and pray as we do.